So I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but there are now just six weeks between today and Easter. Six weeks. So it's time for us to start preparing ourselves for the coming of Easter. It's time for us to prepare ourselves in the season that we call Lent. That's Lent, L-E-N-T, not Lent, L-I-N-T, because Lent, L-I-N-T, that's the stuff that you get in your belly button sometimes, okay? Lent, L-E-N-T, is a time of preparation. It is a time of readiness. It's a time where we try to figure out what our next step toward Christ needs to be. And that's what we want to spend the next six weeks doing here at Melbourne Heights. We want to spend the next six weeks helping you figure out what your next step toward Christ needs to be as you prepare yourself for the coming of Easter. And we want to go about that in a specific way. You've already kind of heard it. Our choir alluded to it in the song that they just sang. But we want to help you figure out your next step toward Christ by exploring some of the events and activities that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And we're going to start today with a scene that just about everyone is familiar with. It's, a, it's a, such a familiar scene that one of the most well-known paintings in all of human history is dedicated to depicting this scene. This particular painting was created in the 1400s by none other than Leonardo da Vinci. And it's hung in just about every church's banquet hall since Leonardo finished up with it, I think. Of course, I'm talking about the Last Supper. You know what the Last Supper looked like even if we didn't put an image of it up on the screen behind me this morning. You know what it looks like. Jesus is sitting there in the middle of it, and he is surrounded by his disciples, and his disciples are engaged in various activities around him. You can see Jesus peacefully sitting right there in the middle, and then you have other disciples who are lovingly looking on Jesus, adoringly with their eyes. Other disciples seem to be engaged in deep conversations. Some of them even seem to be having heated debates and arguments that are happening. And the list goes on and on about the way that the disciples are interacting in this image. But even though this is considered to be a true masterpiece, I have to tell you something this morning. I have at least one major problem with Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper. And my biggest problem is that that's not what the Last Supper looked like at all. Okay? So we need to start trying to get this image out of our mind. It's not what the Last Supper looked like at all. So what is it that Leonardo da Vinci got especially wrong inside of this picture? Well, a lot of people, when you first look at this image, you think that what da Vinci got wrong is that he has all of the disciples and Jesus sitting on one side of the table. I mean, who has ever sat at one side of the table with all of your friends when you get together for Thanksgiving or whatever it may be, right? It's so ridiculous that there's a meme that's been going around on social media for years now that looks like this, where it says, waitstaff has to set a table for 26 so that all 13 can sit on one side, okay? It's a little crazy when we see the image, right? Because we would never sit at a table like that. But you know what? Eventually, actually got that part right. Jesus and his disciples would have all been sitting on one side of the table, and they would have been sitting on one side of the table to make it easier for the server to make their way around the room to serve the food that would have been eaten that night. So if it's not the seating order that da Vinci got wrong and having everybody on one side of the table, then what is it about this picture? Well, like I said, it's not the seating order, but it's how Jesus and his disciples are actually sitting. Jesus and his disciples are all sitting in chairs. 
And you're like, of course you're sitting in chairs. Who sits, uh, who, how can you have a meal if you're not sitting down in chairs? But that's a relatively modern addition to our eating, okay? Chairs haven't always been around. So this morning we've set up a little display here on the stage to help you get a little bit better idea of what it would have looked like at that last supper, all right? So the first thing that you'll notice as I'm standing over here is, okay, I'm a tall guy, I'm like six foot two, but if I stand beside a normal table, it comes up past my knees, okay? So the tables were a whole lot lower, and what Jesus and his disciples would have done, what everyone would have done when they gathered together for a common meal, is they would have sat down on the floor. They would have sat down on the ground around them. And if you'll notice the way that I'm sitting right now, the table is significantly lower, and when people were eating, they would have leaned with their left arm on the table to support themselves, and they would have eaten with their right hand whatever food was going around and being distributed at the table. In between courses, while they weren't actively leaning on the table, they would have been lounging on pillows or, or certain things like that that would have kept them comfortable during the meal. So, here, here's a word of advice. For those of you, next time you eat with your mom and your mom yells at you for putting your elbow on the table, say, Jesus did it first. <laughs> All right? But I also want you to pay attention to how my legs are situated as I am sitting at the table. Now, typically when we eat at a table today, where do our legs go? They go underneath the table. That's not how Jesus and his disciples would have sat at the table. They would have sat with their legs stretched out so that the person down beside them would have had the other person's legs and feet directly behind their head. So da Vinci got it really wrong when he painted this picture of Jesus and his disciples all sitting in chairs around the table. But he was right about the fact that they would have all been seated on one side. Because imagine if you were a server and you had to make your way around and distribute food, and everybody's legs were stretched out behind the table. Makes it really difficult. The server would have had to climb over every single person. But instead, what we're able to do because of this position is the server can move in and out and can serve to each person in the place that they're sitting without having to stumble over them. All right, but what's the big deal? Who really cares? Why in the world did I just spend the entire beginning of this sermon talking about the way that Leonardo da Vinci messed up his painting of the Last Supper. I mean, after all, he's a much better artist than I could ever even hope to be. So what was the point? Does it really matter, or why does it matter, if Jesus was sitting at the Last Supper, if he was standing up at the Last Supper, if he was lounging and stretched out at the Last Supper? Well, it matters for one big reason. And that big reason is a story that we find inside of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab the God. Grab your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. And what the Gospel of John is, is this is John's account, his biography of the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 13, there is one really strange scene that happens here. So John chapter 13, we're going to start reading together in verse 1. This is what John writes. Before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal, and the devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands that he had come, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now this is the part where it gets a little strange, okay? Starting in verse 4. So Jesus got up from the table, he took off his robes, he picked up a linen towel, and he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a wash basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he was wearing. That's a little strange. 
it's a little odd. It's a little weird. Truth of the matter is it's even kind of gross to think about the fact that Jesus is going to have to wash his disciples' feet. Now, I've been around for 35 years, and nobody has washed my, seat since my mom, washed my feet since my mama did it when I was a baby, okay? So it's weird. But when you can get past the strangeness, the oddity, the weirdness of this scene to us in the 21st century, and you stop and you think about what's actually happening here, the whole thing starts to make way more sense. So that's what we want to do. I want to spend a little bit of time trying to understand why Jesus needed to wash his disciples' feet, because it will make perfect sense to us. Now, they had gathered together in the upper room that day because they were going to share a meal together. But they got together a little bit later on in the day, in the evening time, to share this meal. So earlier in the day, the disciples and Jesus, they would have been moving through the streets of Jerusalem, trying to prepare everything that they needed to have prepared to share this meal together. So something that you need to realize is that as Jesus and his disciples are out and they're walking the streets of Jerusalem, they're not walking streets that look anything like streets in modern-day America. These aren't streets that are fully paved with concrete or asphalt, okay? They are out, at best, they're walking on cobblestone streets. In reality, they're more likely walking on dirt streets, okay? So you have 13 guys that are out walking on these dirt streets in Jerusalem. And when they're walking these streets in Jerusalem, they're not wearing nice fancy shoes like you and I put on every morning before we go out to face our day. Jesus and his disciples, at best, they would have had on sandals, but in likelihood, they were probably wearing nothing on their feet at all. So they're barefoot. They're barefoot walking the streets of Jerusalem that are nothing more than dirt. And Jerusalem is a hot, arid climate. So as they are walking around, their feet are getting hot, they're getting sweaty. If you paid attention to our announcement slide, you saw that there are 250,000 sweat glands in your feet. 250,000 sweat glands in your feet. So their feet are getting hot, they're getting sweaty, and they're walking along the dirt road. So Ed, with every stride that they take, the sweat that is accumulating on their feet is mixing with the dirt that's on the ground, and it's starting to turn into mud that is getting caked onto their feet. And I know that's not exactly the picture that you wanted to have in your mind when you came to church this morning, but I want to tell you something. That's the most sanitary they would have hoped their feet would be. Because when Jesus and his disciples were walking the streets of Jerusalem, they weren't worried about the things that we worry about in the streets, like cars coming racing by us, all right? They were worried about the animals that were hauling people and goods through the streets of Jerusalem, and they were really worried about what the animals may be leaving behind them in the streets of Jerusalem, okay? You get the point. I don't need to go any further than that, all right? But this is what's happening. So the disciples and Jesus, they've been out. They've spent the whole day walking through the streets. They've got mud that is caked onto their feet. They may very well have stuff that was left behind by animals that has been caked onto their feet. And now they are getting ready to sit down and share a meal together. But they're not sitting like we do with our, table, with our feet underneath the table so that nobody's going to see them or be impacted by them. When Jesus and his disciples are sitting together at the table, they're sitting like this with their feet outstretched which means the person that's two guys down for me is really going to hope that I didn't step in something bad on the streets of Jerusalem, okay? They're going to hope that the muddy sweatiness of my feet is not overly distracting and such an impairment to 
to what's happening inside of that room that they can't even enjoy the meal. So Jesus, inside of the story, decides he's going to take this upon himself. He knows that the disciples aren't going to be able to fully enjoy the meal that they're sharing together if they're all sitting there with dirty feet, with dirty, sweaty, stinky feet surrounding one another. So Jesus gets up. He takes a wall, He takes a pitcher of water, a basin, ties a towel around himself, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. He starts washing the disciples' feet. He's the one that's going to clean their dirty, sweaty, stinky feet so that they won't be distracted while they're sharing their last supper with him. He's going to clean their dirty, sweaty, stinky feet so that they can focus in on being in his presence. And Jesus didn't have to do it. Jesus didn't have to get up from that table. He didn't have to get that pitcher of water, that basin, that towel around his waist. He didn't have to be the one that washed their feet. Because in ancient Israel society, this was a job that was relegated to the lowest servant or the lowest slave in the household. That's the one who would have been waiting at the door for you when you came in to wash your feet as you entered into a banquet or any type of religious celebration. But Jesus and his disciples, they are in a borrowed room. They don't have servants. They don't have slaves that can have this responsibility that can clean their feet. So you see in the story, the disciples are perfectly content to say, well, there's no servant here to wash my feet. I'm just going to go ahead and sit down. I'm going to take my spot at the table. But it's Jesus. Jesus. God made flesh that gets up and takes on the responsibility of the lowest servant, the lowest slave, and the entire household. The greatest among them became a servant to all of them. Now that story tells us a whole lot about who Jesus is. That story tells us a whole lot about who the Jesus that we come into this place week after week, Sunday after Sunday to worship is. And that story tells us a whole lot about who we, as followers of Jesus, should be. It tells us a whole lot about the way that we should live our lives because of Jesus. God made human is willing to humble himself, to get down on his knees, to take on the job of the lowest servant and the lowest slave in the house to serve other people, then we should be willing to put other people and God first and put ourselves last. But there's more that's happening in this story than just the story of service that we're used to hearing when we hear this account. This story is more than just a story of Jesus serving his disciples. This story is also an allegory. It's also a parable for salvation. Let me walk you through and show you what I mean. Every day in our lives, we walk down the dirty streets of life. As we're walking down the dirty streets of life, we kick up a little bit of dust as we go. So we kick up a little bit of the dirt and the dust that is anger, and it starts settling on our feet. On our feet. When we walk a little bit further, we kick up a little more dirt, we kick up a little more dust, the dust of jealousy starts settling on our feet. We go a little further, we kick up a little more dirt, a little more dust, and the dust of pride starts settling on our feet. We go down a little further, we kick up a little more dust, a little more dirt, and we start having the, the, the dust, the dirt of selfishness settling in on our feet. And before we know it, all that dirt has turned into mud. It's caked on, not to the soles of our feet, 
but into the souls that make us who we are. And before you know it, all that dirt, all that dust that's kicked up through our anger, through our pride, through our jealousy, through our selfishness, it starts to stink. It starts to make us stink. And I'm not talking about the kind of stink that you can go and buy a bottle of Febreze and just spritz it away without any problem. The kind of stink I'm talking about is the kind of stink that you get when you have garbage out under the hot sunlight in the middle of July, okay? That smell of hot garbage is what our souls start to smell like just because we're walking through life every single day with the dirt and the dust kicking up and caking itself onto our feet. Here's what we need to realize. If we start to smell like hot garbage... Nobody's going to want to be around us. If we start to smell like hot garbage in our lives, nobody's going to want to be around us. So when Jesus and his disciples, when they're sitting at the table, and Jesus can smell the feet of Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the other guys around him, and he's probably thinking, I can't stand to sit by you guys right now. Somebody needs to wash your feet. We need to clean you up so that you can be in my presence. Well, the same thing happens with our souls. Jesus needs to clean us up so that we can be in God's presence because if our souls smell like hot garbage... We're going to be separated from God, separated from the presence of God. We have a word for that inside of church. That word is sin. Sin is the stuff in our lives that separate us from God. Sin is the stuff in your life that separates you from God. It's the dirt, it's the dust, it's the mud that gets caked onto your souls. And you can't wash away your sin yourself. You need Jesus to do that. You can't wash away your sin yourself. You need Jesus to do that. You can't do it. You can't wash away your sin yourself. You need Jesus to do that. I'm going to do something right now in the middle of this sermon that I've never done in any sermon that I've preached in all of my years in ministry. I'm going to talk to you about something that only applies to you this morning if you have already committed your life to following Jesus. If you are a Christian in this place, this message, this part of the message applies to you. So if you're not committed, if you haven't committed your life to following Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian, you can tune me out for the next few minutes. It's perfectly fine. But let me tell you something before you completely tune me out. I'm about to say something to all the Christians in the room this morning that you've probably wanted to say to some Christians in your life. So you might just want to stay tuned in for a little bit longer, okay? Now that I've got all of that out of the way, let me get directly to the point. When I just said that you can't wash your sin away, only Jesus can do that, I have a feeling that just about every Christian inside of this room this morning that you let out a little sigh of relief, that that you felt like I had just let you off of the hook. You felt like you could start tuning me out because Jesus has already washed the sin in your life away. But I want to let you in on a little secret this morning. I want to let you in on a little secret, and it's probably going to hurt your feelings a little bit when I say it, okay? But we all need to hear this. You're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And do you know how I know that you're still a sinner? Because I'm still a sinner too. Okay? I'm still a sinner too. So, hi, my name is Adam and I'm a sinner. You can say it too, but I won't make you right now. Even though I've been a follower of Jesus for 28 years of my life, I'm still a sinner. Even though I've been a follower of Jesus for 28 years in my life, I am still a sinner. I still get mad 
when I'm driving home on Taylorsville Road and the guy in front of me refuses to turn on his blinker before he makes a turn. Makes me mad. Y'all laugh because you might get mad at the same guy. Or you may be laughing because you are that guy. And <laughs> if you are that guy, I want to talk with you after church, okay? I still get jealous. I get jealous when I get on Facebook and I see all the pictures that get posted by some of my friends when they're away on some fabulous vacation, and I would think, I wish I could be on that fabulous vacation. You do the same thing. You do the same thing. I still put my wants, my needs, my desires first and put the wants, the needs, and the desires of God and other people last. You do it too. You do it too. So you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. We're all still So you still need Jesus to clean your dirty, sweaty, stinky souls. Just like the disciples needed Jesus to clean the dirty, sweaty, stinky souls of their feet. That's actually why I believe John included this part of the story. So let's look back at John chapter 13 and verse 6. John writes, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand it later. No, Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash, you, unless I wash your feet, you won't have a place with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. But Jesus responded, Those who have bathed need only to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. Now I want you to understand what's happening just below the surface in this story. Because when we read it at face value and we see it as a story that is just a story of Jesus' service, this encounter with Simon Peter doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why in the world does John even record this story? But when you take it a step further, when you understand that this is not just a story of service, it's also an allegory, a parable about our salvation, it starts to make a whole lot more sense. Jesus comes to Peter as he's moving around the table and washing the disciples' feet, and Peter cannot understand what in the world his Savior is doing, why he would be doing that. This is the job of the lowest servant, the lowest slave. Why would that be happening here? But what Jesus is doing is he is washing Peter's feet as he is trying to let Peter know that Jesus is not going to let anything stand between Peter and Jesus. That's why Jesus says, you don't get what I'm doing now, but someday you'll understand what's happening here, Peter. I'm not doing this just because your feet stink, Peter. I'm doing this to show you that there's still dirt in your life and that the only one that can remove that dirt from your life is me. So Peter, you have to let me wash your feet. And then Peter pulls the ultimate moment of Peter. He's he's always so quick on his feet and always so quick to put his foot in his mouth along the way. And Peter says, okay, God, if if I have to have my feet washed by you to have any part of you, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head from top to bottom. Wash me. And Jesus says, I've already washed you. I've removed the initial stain of sin in your life. You're clean, Peter. What I want to do is I just want to remove that dirt that you've picked up along the way. That stuff that still comes into your life that's separating you from me. Jesus washes 
all of his disciples' feet so that nothing will stand between them and him. Jesus washes away your sin so that nothing will stand between you and him. Jesus washes away your sin so that nothing will stand between you and him. Like I've said, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they've all already committed themselves to following Jesus. They've been journeying through the hills and the streets and the valleys of Jerusalem and Israel over the last three years with Jesus. They've already committed their lives to following him. But Jesus is telling them, you still have dirt in your lives. There's still things that are separating you from me. And unless God removes that dirt, you can't be closer to me. That's why Peter and Jesus have this conversation. Peter's a follower, but there's still dirt in his life that only Jesus can wash away. And Peter has to let Jesus do it. Now, if you tuned me out a few minutes ago, I want you to tune back in now, because we all need to hear this and we all need to realize this as well. We're all dirty. We're all dirty. Our souls are all dirty, sweaty, stinky souls. And our dirt, the dirt in our lives is keeping us from having the relationship with God that God wants us to have with him. The dirt that's in our lives is keeping us from having the life that God wants us to live. And we can't clean the dirt out of our lives by ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. But Jesus can't wash your soul unless you let him. Jesus can't wash your soul unless you let him. So here's my challenge for you. This isn't a challenge just to do this week. This is a challenge that I want you to do every week between now and the coming of Easter. I want you to spend some time with God at some point every week for the next six weeks with God, and I want you to ask God to show you the dirt that is still in your life. God, where am I dirty? God, where am I sweating? God, where do I stink in my life right now? Is it my anger? Is it my pride? Is it my jealousy? Is it my selfishness? Where is it that I stink, God? And then I want you to ask God to wash it away. I want you to ask God to wash it away. God, wash away my anger. God, wash away my jealousy. God, wash away my pride. God, wash away my selfishness. Because as long as there is dirt in your life, even just a little bit of dirt that's getting kicked up on the soles of your feet, there's something that's keeping you away from Jesus. There's something that is separating you from God. And you can't grow closer to God if you're separated from Him. So give God your dirty souls and let Him make you clean. Let's pray together. God, we don't like to admit that we are still imperfect people. God, we don't like to admit that we still have sin in our lives. God, we don't like to admit that we, even though we have committed our lives to following you, still struggle with our anger, with our pride, with jealousy, with selfishness. But God, when we refuse to admit that we still have this dirt in our lives, we refuse. We refuse to allow you to work in our lives. So God, my prayer for everyone who can hear my voice today, 
is that you help us to see the dirt that is in our lives, those things that are keeping us away from you, and that you allow us to turn that dirt over to you so that you can wash it away, so that we can be who you made us to be, so that we can live the lives you want us to live. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.